This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. So good evening and welcome back to another session of Comparative Media Insights tonight with um, Lisa Nakamura, um, her credentials are there, Director of American, Asian American Studies, Professor, Institute of Communication Research, I'm saying this for the recording, um, Professor, Department of Media and Cinema Studies, and Professor American, Asian American Studies at uh, the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Lisa's work focuses on race, gendered, and national identity in digital space, and her books include Cybertypes, Race, Ethnicity, and Identity on the Internet, and digitizing race, visual cultures of the internet. She's currently working on um, workers without, tentative title, workers without bodies, virtual labor, nation, and identity, looking at things like Amazon's Mechanical Turk, uh, gold farmers, call centers, call service centers, and the ways in which those are related to notions of, for example, Chinese identity or South Asian identity. Um, she's also, uh, she was last year visiting scholar at the Intel People and Products Lab, and coming up soon, this summer, I believe, she'll be at Microsoft's research labs here in Cambridge. So, Lisa, welcome. Thank you. Um, do, okay. <laughs> can, can everybody hear me okay? Uh, this mic is supposedly on, but I don't think it's doing no, anything. It's oh, all right, never mind. Okay, so um, thank you, really, for that um, introduction. Uh, this is work in process, so I'm already going to beg your forgiveness for some of the undevelopedness of it. Um, I'm going to start out by talking about the trope of the digital native, which has been quite popular lately. Um, it's found currency both in the social sciences. You'll find articles about digital natives and their traits, as well as in the popular press. It's most often defined as persons born after 1980, um, defined as those who grew up with the internet and personal computing. So there's some disagreement about whether being a digital native is good or bad. There are people who see it as a crucial quality for competitive workers and an informed citizenry. Others, like Andrew Keene, see it as a harbinger of the dumbing down of American society. But at least there's some consensus around what that is. By contrast, those who did not grow up using the internet are termed digital immigrants. Implied in this formulation is the idea that digitality is a realm that all can aspire to, but only some can possess fully in a quasi-national sense as citizens. This trope is not new at all. It can be seen in an ad from a WorldCom advertisement from over nine years ago. I'll just show it really fast. I was born into a new generation. I was born into a new generation. I was born into a new generation. I was reborn into a new generation. Generation D. World Cup. Generation D. Generation D isn't about the country. It isn't about culture. It's about attitude. Je viens de France. Je viens de France. I come from Indonesia. I come from Indonesia. I'm from Oklahoma. Oklahoma. But we speak the same language. Digital. And we make it easy to understand. Want to know about web hosting? Web hosting. Web centers. Global IPVPNs. You've come to the right generation. Generation D. World Cup. Generation Digital. You've come to the right generation. Generation D. Okay, so WorldCom doesn't exist anymore. But this, 
But this idea of a digital, um, post-national digital people, right? Um, th this uh, whining is driving everyone insane. Um, okay, so in cyber types, which is that, and in race and cyberspace, sorry, I analyze digital industry discourses such as this one to show that images of race and nation are crucial to the formation of cyberspace, the internet, as both a utopia, a no place of perfect equality, and simultaneously a space shot through with cultural difference. And here I'm showing it again, not to make that point, which I've already made, but to point out the idea of digital nativity um, being born into a generation versus reborn, the person who is older has to claim digital immigrant status, right? I was reborn into a new generation. Um, this uh, commercial I just showed is always already a global village, transnational in image, if not an actual distribution. And in 2000, it certainly was not transnational in actual distribution, um, though that today is changing in key ways that have created a new digital working class, a racialized group of gray collar workers, to use Jack Chu's phrase, you occupy the position of neither digital natives, right, entitled transnational cosmopolitan power users, nor digital immigrants, the graying computer users who are gamely trying to get in the game somehow, but often the more precarious and dangerous position of digital migrant. So someone who has neither the ability to assimilate and be accepted as a native um, nor the social capital to aspire to that condition, digital migrant. And I'll expand on, on what I mean by that, right? This is a significant change from earlier industrial discourses of the internet as post-nation. Instead, what I'm trying to talk about is how this cosmopolitan post-national space, which was really exploited by the IT industries in the 2000s, is being repeated in virtual world discourses, right? Especially um, virtual worlds like Second Life, World of Warcraft, and so on. Um, that continue to, to claim the internet is a global village of diversity and a no space where bodies do not exist. Digital migrants like gold farmers, like Amazon Turk workers, I'll, I'll show a little clip on what gold farmers are. They're basically, they're people, um, mostly in China, who play games like World of Warcraft, accumulate virtual goods, and sell them for real money. Mia's written about this in her book on cheating. Um, Richard Heeks, an economist at Manchester, estimates this to be a $500 million a year industry and a growing one. Um, Amazon Turk, the mechanical Turk um, that Amazon hosts, is a way for people to bid out jobs like, say, doing a survey or tagging images um, and uh, lets people bid for those jobs and it accepts the lowest bid, right? So a lot of the work that mechanical Turk workers do is done in India, about 30% one person estimates, right? So these are digital migrants. Um, unlike programmers um, and IT administrators or hardware designers, these are people who work in world, right? They work in the world. They're laborers in Second Life, um, in World of Warcraft and so on, migrating into these spaces to create and sell born digital clothing, buildings, virtual currency, and human intelligence tasks, HITS they're called, um, such as survey taking and image labeling um, to other virtual world users and to industry. So I'll show you the clip to give you a sense of what that looks like. And here's a second book, anyway. Um, so, all right, here's the clip. Okay. Whoa, sorry, that was too fast. Huh. <laughs> Thank you.
就是在做职业文章以后的话，你一边可以游戏，一边可以得到，虽然不多，但是可以得到一份收入，也是很开心。一个在生产经历的一些文章，一些啊职业文章，他会选择在一个地方，这选择在一个地方重复的。啊，重复的做一件事，就重复的杀断，杀断再也得到进。因为，因为他他的工作，他的工作上面给他的要求就是来打到进，所以说他就不得不，他必须在这里打。当有有些玩家他想过来这里做任务，或者说他也想在这里给他来打怪升级的时候，那么中国人的魄力啊，就没办法来给他提前。要把他赶走，因为我有家里要工作，我必须在这里打，我不要骚扰这个意思。Okay, so this is a clip from a documentary made by Gay Jin, who is a UCSD doctoral student who since left the program to become a journalist in China. And he was investigating the world of gold farmers, as does Jack Chu, who's written a book called Working Class ICTs. Um, Jack found that um, gold farmers commonly sleep under their desks. Um, or they sleep in pallets behind the, where the computers are, and then they trade off in 12-hour shifts. So this is really immiserated work. It's, very, it's not very well paid. Um, and as you can see, there's a lot of pressure to make a quota, a lot of pressure to work hard. Um, these are tedious, repetitive jobs, not at all what WorldCloud imp implied was in, st in store for us as ICT users. Um, these are human intelligence tasks that actually use humans as artificial, artificial intelligence, as cheap computers, right? These are jobs that could be done by computers and sometimes are. Sometimes um, mods are used to harvest gold, but it's, you know, sometimes cheaper to use humans. Much of this labor is performed across transnational west-slash-global-south borders, with many of the workers living in East and South Asia. Thus, Mechanical Turk workers, the Twitter user, the citizen journalist, the gold farmer, the game-level modder possess varying degrees of legality, security, and social standing. In My Mother Was a Computer, Kate Hales reminds us that the gendering of early computing, computers were once people, um, her mother. And the repetitive tasks involved in early computing were supplied by the manual and cognitive labor of women. This useful reminder that the computer and the human body, in its race and gender particularity, have always co-created each other, rather than existing as autonomous and separate artifacts, can help us recognize this process as it occurs in the context of Web 2.0 and virtual worlds, the so-called participatory web, or as my students think about it, the fun web, but not fun for everybody. In Czech, robota means drudgery, drudgery. So robot comes from the Czech robota, drudgery, labor nobody wants to perform. It can also be translated as slavery. And the conditions of work for many gold farmers are, look a little bit like that, right? Um, it's play under compulsion or work under compulsion. Um, much of this digital drudgery is performed using the computer. It's a distinctive form of labor. Um, so the computer as an instrument of liberation, which is how it was represented in earlier discourses, is really coming to resemble more other types of high-tech devices that were expensive that users were allowed to take home, such as the sewing machine in Victorian England. Also a very expensive, hard to <laughs> reproduce technology that workers were permitted to take into the home to facilitate production, right? So the OLPC debate could be viewed in this way. You know, letting people have computers is not always necessarily. We could look to this earlier history of labor, I think, to understand that. The shift to digital labor, what Chu calls gray-collar labor, is occurring at the same time as vast labor migrations within and between nations, most notably the global south. 
working class ICT users who produce and consume ICT such as cheap cell phones and online games played by the majority of internet users in China um, are creating a new transnational working class. The notion of the transnational owes a big debt, of course, to Arjun Napaderai and Manuel Castells' work, um, who identified technology's ability to permit communication and transportation in more cost-efficient ways. Um, according to Apaderai, the pull of national identity has given way to a post-national consciousness. So this is controversial. Yet the discourse surrounding digital labor, especially that which occurs in virtual worlds like Second Life and WoW, appeal to nostalgic ideas about online national citizenship, belonging, nativity, and indigeneity. So who's a native, right? Who's a refugee? Who's an unwanted presence in these worlds? Um, I'm going to be talking about two case studies. One is the case of Uru, a virtual world that Namia knows about. Um, it was owned by Ubisoft and it was shut down, right? So the people who left Uru, they were virtual world game players or inhabitants, you would say, really figured themselves as refugees and as immigrants. They were looking for a new home. They even produced a bunch of literature and a bunch of songs about yearning for the homeland. And they wanted to reproduce their Aruvian culture in another online world. So they tried to go to there.com. Some of them tried to go to Second Life. And they really figured their um, movement from one platform to another as being about diaspora and forced migration. Right? Celia Pierce has written a whole book about this. Um, and it was also somewhat, they claimed, racialized. They claimed to be subject to discrimination. Um, Second Life forced them to move because citizens didn't want to be near them, and they really figured themselves as an oppressed minority without a home. Um, I'm also going to be talking about uh, the um, Play On group, which is a group of lawyers at NYU, and their, their struggle for avatar rights. Um, Ralph Koch has written the Avatar Bill of Rights, which also figures virtual worlds as spaces where people have rights because they are natives. They have put time and energy, sometimes virtual property, into their, their time there, and they assume they have rights there. Um, so the discourse surrounding this labor um, really resorts to these older ideas about citizenship, belonging, nation, so on. The line dividing citizen in a virtual world from an illegal immigrant, migrant, or guest worker um, has everything to do with the form of labor that individuals perform, as well as where they are from, their access to leisure, if they're violating a EULA, how they're violating a EULA, you know, end user license agreement, um, what language they speak, and what race they are. Demonized forms of labor, like gold farming, are articulated to class, race, and nation in ways that echo earlier U.S. formations of anti-migrant illegal, uh, il, um, anti illegality, lack of access to rule of law, and social exclusion. Um, Okay. Races and nations matter in relation to digital games. And some people will say Second Life isn't a game, right? Um, WoW is a game. And they are being remapped, just as this visualization of online communities demonstrates. And uh, yeah, I think I have this in the right order. Um, this is Todd Presner's map of the digital human <laughs> map of online communities. It's from 2007. And you can already tell it's pretty outdated. Um, you would definitely make MySpace a lot smaller than Facebook now, but at this time, and WoW would be a lot bigger than it is here. Um, this is made as a map that figures nation as having proportional size and borders based on numbers of citizens, right? Not actual space. Um, virtual world dwellers are really mobile, and so they migrate quickly from one realm to another. As you, see, as you can see, MySpace has shrunk quite a bit, um, and World of Warcraft has grown. 
Um, in many ways, these do articulate to categories of race, nation, and gender, however. For example, Orkut was started by Google as an American social network, or rather, I think, with the intention of attracting Americans, um, but it's now 50% Brazilian and 18% Indian immigrants. Therefore, it's been shifted, or its operations unit has been shifted to uh, Belo Horizonte, Brazil, in recognition of this change. Um, the mass migration or exodus from MySpace to Facebook and the cultural struggle over these racial and ethnic borders is described eloquently in Dana Boyd's forthcoming essay in, in, in an anthology I'm editing as white flight, a reaction to the widespread notion that MySpace has become a cyber ghetto, overly customized by user activity, covered with graffiti, occupied by undesirable people of color who are neither college educated nor college bound, another bad neighborhood of the internet. Presner's map envisions participation in the form of content creation, profile management, social behavior, peer-to-peer -peer media sharing, fan activity, or fee payment as creating citizenship. Good citizens add value. Bad citizens, like visually exuberant MySpace users, take it away. In a version of some forms of the state, everyone except the virtual world developer or platform owner is a guest and a worker. Maybe a guest because they are a worker. Um, though not a guest worker. Those would be gold farmers and so on. Um, their standing is constituted by performance of different forms of labor, legal and semi-legal, agreeing to terms of service, providing this form of information or that form of information, and so on. The internet is figured here as a virtual world of social relations where the homesteading metaphor, which we threw out long ago, you know, that Howard Rheingold gave us, somewhat obtains, but with really interesting conditions. So virtual world users and the virtual world's legal scholarship movement are trying to make claims for rights, quasi-national rights based on property ownership, rights to occupation, persistent space, rights to service provision, which really mimic the, the kind of discourse of citizenship. Um, so I talked a little bit about the Uru refugee case, the people who are looking for a new homeland. Um, the play on legal movement is really trying to embed rights discourse in virtual worlds. As Hannah Arendt noted in The Origins of Totalitarianism, what separates a citizen from the stateless individual or refugee are claims to rights, the right to have rights, which can only be granted by the state. When the state is a corporation, Blizzard, Ubisoft, Linden Labs, and so on, a new formation of citizenship based on sanctioned forms of value extraction from users in the forms of fees, compliance with terms of service, and a narrow definition of creativity separates citizens from the rightless. So gold farmers are rightless. They often have accounts banned. They can be harassed by other players. They really um, have suffered social death, right? That's a term that I think makes the most sense to describe them. Um, but the rights to creationist capitalism, which is what Tom Bolstorff describes as the kind of um, attraction of second life, um, reserves the, the ability to make, right, to make goods, creative goods. Um, as underwriting the citizenship of people in Second Life, right? Um, the new creative class is a worker whose creativity is underwritten by these digital platforms that make it available to others. So as Bolstorff says, creativity was no longer only what labor allowed one to do during leisure time. It was a form of labor in its own right. This reflected a broader blurring of work and play in virtual worlds so that they become indistinguishable from each other. And this is Nikki who says this. Now, I don't agree that, that there is an indistinguishable blurring between work and play at all. At all. I think that gold farmers are interesting because they make it very clear there is a huge line between work and play. And it's very much a racialized, somewhat gendered, and national line. And so this 
you know, gray collar, ICT working class, um, transnational person is not a minority, right? I mean, the Heeks, uh, the Heeks um, report on gold farmers is really chilling to me because he says, we need to study gold farmers, even if we don't care about World of Warcraft, because this is what the developing world will do with ICTs, right? This is the future of the developing world, is to do this kind of gray collar labor. So both Aruvians and MUD users, um, who Ralph Costa writes about in a Bill of Rights for Avatars, envision themselves as possessing rights because of their creationist capitalism, right? their making of things in world, having labor to make the world through their social interaction, community building, and sometimes unlawful intervention into virtual world development. Ironically, sometimes you have to break the EULA to make the world. right? <laughs> to add on, you have to kind of break the world a little bit to make it. Right? That's the logic of modding sometimes. Um, this kind of creationist capitalism, though, is really lauded by participatory media scholars. They see this as, as awesome. Right? It's great to break the EULA to make the world. However, there are other people breaking the EULA to make the world in a different way. 20% right? of our World of Warcraft users play, buy gold. That's why it's such a big industry. And there's a huge market for these kinds of reproductive labors, I would say. Um, so I, I kind of summed up the Aruvian um, take, but I'm going to add this add a little bit here. Um, Pierce's study of Uru users describes the shutting down of their virtual world as initiating a user diaspora, and she dubs its users as refugees. Um, so the industry strategy of appealing to a sense of national belonging to the world, where Iruvians really backfired here, um, because Ubisoft's termination of Uru created a disgruntled and politicized citizenry that brought their grievances and suspicions to other virtual worlds. So Iruvians are motivated by a deep desire for self-determination, as she says, and a sense of having been wronged by a virtual world, which led them to, quote, harboring a sense that the best solution would be one not controlled by a corporation. So they wanted some kind of platform for themselves that would not be for profit, so they couldn't be kicked off again. Um, they strongly articulated their struggle to the discourse of xenophobia and racism. As they attempted to move their community to other virtual worlds, they encountered what Pierce terms anti-immigrant sentiment in there.com and Second Life and had to relocate five times to avoid harassment from, quote, indigenous Therians. And she uses the term indigenous here, which I, I, I'm amazed by. I think that's so interesting to appropriate that kind of discourse of rights to a virtual world. Um, and I talked already about their set of tropes that they produce, their own language, their own poems, songs, and stories, such as yearning for the homeland, um, which helped to create the deep affective ties that they had, as well as their sense of cultural distinctiveness. Um, in some sense, their appropriation of the discourse of the stateless, as described by Arendt, who, who wrote that the stateless person is synonymous with the refugee and is emblematic of modernity, was part of the, this appeal and part of why it works so well. As virtual worlds become quasi-states, where one labors, socializes, and claims persistent space, one can say they are now modern, in a sense. Um, Ralph Koster writes that the right to play, so he's appropriating the American discourse of rights, includes the freedom to play on the user end, the freedom to design on the platform end, the right to make changes, the freedom to design together, the freedom to have some dialogue between the designer and the user. Um, Castronova pushes the discourse of rights even further, asserting that Coster playfully deconstructed a declaration of the rights of avatars. The declaration expresses something important and makes sure that we all understand that communities of people who interact on the internet are indeed communities of people. Like all network folk, they depend on the infrastructure to keep their community alive. And that means they exist in a relationship 
to network administrators, it is similar to the relationship between citizens and government. In the same volume, the issue of real money trade, gold farming, is taken up and condemned as ruining the community, breaking faith with users who depend upon the state or the developer to protect their play experience, um, or rather their culture, from migrants or unwanted users, such as gold farmers. So as both of these cases show, virtual worlds create a sense of sovereignty that is at base privatized and liberalized. Production and ownership of property and the payment of fees, as well as the correct sort of civic behavior and feelings, right? A sense of wanting to preserve the player experience for paying players or the right kind of paying players, um, endow a sense of entitlement to rights, one that corporations are unwilling to give. So there's a struggle here. And there are a lot of case studies in this vein, right? Um, advocating for the rights of players to have the world run in the way that they want. The concept of biopower, the distribution of the right to live or die based on membership or exclusion from a state, racial group, or sovereignty is inextricably tied to conversations about refugees, diaspora, and other forms of statelessness. So biopower, Foucault, you know, Agamben, those people. As Max Weber put it in his influential theory of the state, only the state reserves the right to itself to perform violence upon citizens. What happens when a state, such as Lineage 2, a popular, massively multiplayer online role-playing game, decides to sanction and perform acts of racialized selection, such as the organized killing of particular kinds or groups of players suspected of belonging to a specific group, say, Koreans. Now, Doug Thomas wrote an article about this called KPK, which is about Korean player killers. It was a guild in this world that specifically took it upon itself to kill Korean players because it saw them as possibly gold farmers that were ruining the economy, right? They were viewed as undesirable players. Um, as Steinkuhler and Thomas describe, at times, even game developers have led organized killings of players suspected to be Korean in some of these PvP games. Um, gold farmers thus, as I've talked about before, have suffered social death. They are denied the right to play because their economic activity is viewed as ruining the community, ruining the economy and inflating the virtual currency, making it harder and less profitable for leisure players to sell their stuff. I have another article called Don't Hate the Player, Hate the Game, which is about the <laughs> some of that racist machinima that you can see against gold farmers um, in World of Warcraft, and I'm, I'm not gonna show those anymore. So worker players such as gold farmers are illegible persons in virtual worlds like WoW. They are viewed as negative assets by other players, though their goods are bought often, not as productive citizens, if game culture is about skill, a sense of pride in good play, and possible you know, ideal democracy, gold farmer skill is discounted and illegible because they are gold farmers. Gold farmers are well aware of this characterization and know that they are despised. So I'm going to show a clip that's going to talk about that. Okay. Oh, here we go. Okay, if we are concerned ourselves about becoming objects of capture, as our play is constantly put to work, right, our data is mined as we play Farmville. I know this, I've gotten spam, you know, based on Farmville stuff I've done. And we see this happening before our eyes. Um, fan labor works to promote the games themselves, right? 
um, our uh, email is mined for information about what we might possibly buy. Surely this dynamic obtains differently for gold farmers or workers, worker players whose capture is far more literal and has already been accomplished. For if online play is a special form of agency, gold farming is play under compulsion. Instead, gold farmers do their work in-world, playing, wor playing the game with leisure players and sharing the space with them. They are unwanted migrant workers to a virtual world that's designed to create a sense of nationality, a sense of cohesion, and a sense of community. Okay. As I mentioned before, most gold farmers either sleep under their computers or in pallets in a workshop really close to where their computers are. Figuratively chained to the apparatus, it is both the instrument of their labor and their leisure. For as Julian DeBell noted, many play for fun during their off hours. Some people have seen this as a contradiction that this would happen. So I'll show this clip. Okay, so contrast this to the WorldCom commercial, right? I mean, this is a very different idea of the cosmopolitan or the global as it's being enacted in virtual worlds. Um, so DeBell notes that many play for fun during their off hours, as this, as this guy says. But rather than viewing this as evidence that gold farmers are having fun while working or are not really working, it makes more sense to view this as akin to the slaughterhouse worker, another industry you know, performed predominantly by labor migrants, who buys cheap meat at the grocery store. Reproductive labor is produced by particular types and groups of workers, but by definition consumed by everyone. The transnational dynamic of this sort of transaction is shown really eloquently in the film Food, in, uh, not Food Incorporated, um, Fast Food Nation, I don't know if any of you saw it, in which a migrant couple labors all day in a filthy and dangerous slaughterhouse in Colorado, but celebrates their first paychecks by eating hamburgers in a local fast food chain. Um, I mentioned biopower before, and I think that the role of death in games is really interesting and not very well studied. I mean, death is part of games. You know, everybody, it, it's part of the structure of games, getting new lives and so on. Um, death, its physics, its, its sounds, its look, are also exploited as part of the language of play for work within the diegetic space of WoW. So to unpack that a little, I'm going to show you what this is. Okay, this is called body spam. Um, any of you play WoW? Okay, so you've probably seen this before. Um, gold farmers, uh, or gold farmer companies rather, gold companies, um, will stage these, they're kind of like performances, I guess, where they kill each other in such a way as to form letters with their bodies in public spaces in the game. So the name of this company is MMOP.com, and what these players have done, I think very creatively, is to kill each other and then create new bodies to spell out the name of their company. So here's one example, and you have to see these because this is where the bank is, right? <laughs> when you're playing the game, you have to go here and look at these. So um, someone in my guild took these. It's not me there. Um, and here's a little video of how it's done, which I think is just fascinating. So the gold farmers know how and where to stand and where to kill each other so as to form these letters with these bodies.
right, this was not made by me. I found this on YouTube because people were so curious about how this was accomplished, right? Everyone knows about this. I've seen it several times. So they wanted to um, document how it's done. It can also be done by jumping, apparently. If you jump and land in a particular way, you can spell out a name with your body. So these are bodies that are viewed as having no social value in these worlds, you know, really subsumed to capital, capital creation. Though they work within them full time, they are really outside the space of virtual world subjects, the bad subjects of digital capital, the flip side of the prosumer or participatory media creator. Okay. As ICTs become available to users in new parts of the world, new social formations of virtual labor, race, nation, and gender are being born. And if virtual world users' rights to citizenship or claims to citizenship and sovereignty within them are to be taken seriously, so too must the question of gray-collar or semi-legal virtual laborers and their social relations and cultural identity in these spaces. Just as labor migrants around the globe struggle to access a sense of belonging in alien territories, so too do virtual laborers confront hostility and xenophobia in popular gaming worlds and virtual workshops, such as World of Warcraft and Amazon Mechanical Turk. Do these users have the right to have rights, is my question. This presentation considers the affective investments, or emotional investments, and cultural identities of these workers within the worlds where they labor. We must look beyond appropriations of claims to rights discourse from privileged users, such as leisure users in Second Life um, and World of Warcraft and the Internet, and see whose bodies are really on the line in virtual worlds. Thank you. Okay, we'll take some questions. The microphone is for recording, so um, please identify yourself. And <coughs> Lisa, um, what do you think is the role or the culpability of the developers of these spaces? Because, I mean, I know they, for most of the virtual worlds, it's illegal, you know, to, to farm gold and to do these things. But at the same time, these are also the developers who are creating these incredibly grindtastic games that, you know, for most of the players who buy gold, they're saying, you know, I don't really want to spend 80 hours trying to get the gold to get my mount or something, um, you know, as opposed to somebody like Raf who says, you know, I want the rights, you know, have you thought, you know, what have you considered in, in relation to the developers? That's an interesting question. I mean, from reading your book, actually, um, I got a really good answer to that, which is that um, in some ways developers encourage gold farming and gold buying by making the game so hard to progress in. Um, and they encourage gold selling because it helps people not quit. You know, games that are really grindtastic, as you say, require lots and lots of repetitive activity, are eventually going to repel people who don't have much free time. And so in other interviews with people who have bought gold, who talk about why they have, there's a BBC interview, and one guy says, I have a job, and I have a life. I don't have time to be doing this repetitive stuff. You know, I need to take care of my family and, you know, do my job, and that's why I buy gold, which is the same reason people say, you know, I have a job, I have a life. I can't mow my own lawn, I can't take care of my own kid all day, I can't, you know, um, you know, I can't cook my own food, and that's why I use service industries, right? So he was kind of posing it in, in very much the same vein, and those service industries are kind of getting done by the, in the global south, sometimes remotely. So I was talking to somebody today about how um, hamburger orders at McDonald's are often taken in Bangalore now. 
um, at least one place, a couple places in Georgia have done this, and they found it was more efficient. You know, that they type in the order and the order goes to the kitchen. There's no reason for the person who takes the order to have to be there. So the logic of call centers is really penetrating lots of different spaces. And, you know, Americans get very irritated when they think they're talking to someone who's not from the U.S. now on the phone, right, because they're so accustomed to the idea it might not be. Um, so that's another part of this, this book I'm working on as well, is the social death of um, people who are telepresent workers through phones, you know, call center workers and so on, and the kind of harassment that they are subject to. So yeah, I think that the game developers are very implicated in this. Like, they know what happens. They enforce, um, they ban accounts selectively. They, they have not gotten rid of all the gold farmers. But like you say, they, they don't really need to. And in some ways, they don't really want to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ian Condry, FLNL, CMS. And I, I'm, I guess my question is just a simple one of, of sort of what, what's to be done about it. You know, I guess one of the things, and maybe it's not, that's a complicated question, but, but the part of it certainly is that I, I find so interesting is, on the one hand, there's the invisibility of it. And I always thought, sort of th thought of it as invisible. But seeing them do the body, bodyspam.com <laughs> body uh, is, is, shows it's a little more complicated than invisibility. Cause it, yeah. uh, but, but then it seems part of it you know, has to do with the corporation dealing with it, right? And I guess that's partly Mia's question, too. You know, yeah. the game developers are part of it. And, uh, but sort of what, what else? I mean, I guess it, there's this transnational element. So, you know, national you know, states say, well, I c we can't enforce laws across uh, right. national boundaries. And so that gets the immigrant issue as well. Uh, but I'm just curious, if you thought about, like, what, what, this is a problem. The grime-tastic is not going to go away, given, it seems to me, so that then what do you do uh, to make this visible or do something that's, about it? That's such a good question. You know, I've given this talk lots of different places, and when I give it at games conferences, they always say, well, gold farmers are breaking the rules. They always feel, they really advocate for the player, the player rights, right? Um, but when I, give, I gave this at Connecticut College, they said, where's the Cesar Chavez of these people? <laughs> that was the first question they asked, which I thought was so great, because it's the exact same talk. Right, and no difference at all. Um, so yeah, what, what about social labor movements or social movements based around labor? Like, why could that not happen? And part of it has to do with why it could not, why it was hard for it to happen with um, any kind of illegal migration, labor migration, because people are afraid. You know, it is hard to organize people who literally don't have the right to be there. So you know, this kind of thing looks kind of like a protest. It could be, but it was not. It was very hard to capture the video of them doing it, right? Um, instead, it's much easier to see the finished product. And so you know, in some ways, I'm not making huge claims for this as an activity, but more as a kind of emblematic moment of what ICTs are for some people, right? Um, it's kind of this literal exercise about biopower. I mean, the fact that people are kind of doing it to each other does not necessarily make it any better in a way. So. Just to sort of follow, I mean, you pointed to the double standard that's deployed for violators mm -hmm. of end user license agreements. On the one hand, the modders are celebrated here as mm -hmm. creative and interventionist, and, and the gold farmers are parasites and ruining the game. Mm -hmm. um, how much of that has to do just with the sources of discourse? That one is a group that is here yeah. in the West writing, yeah, you know, yeah. people that are real fans and masters of the game. Um, as opposed to people that are masters of the game, but working in another language, not necessarily with the time to, or space to intervene in a, in a discourse that would be picked up here in the West. I mean, what's the pattern of that discursive presence? 
That is such a good question. It's a great question because it really points to the need for the kind of research in a way I can't even do because I don't speak Chinese. You know, I, I'm, I don't actually do ethnographies of gold farmers. I'm looking, and there's more of a social formation that's emblematic of the kind of discourse of refugeeness or statelessness in virtual worlds, right? But that, that's something that needs to be looked at very much, um, particularly because the majority of WoW players are Chinese, and most of them are not gold farmers, right? Most of them are leisure players, and they buy gold as well. In fact, gold farmers buy gold, right? And that's viewed as well as, oh, this is, this is totally a formation that isn't oppressive, but entirely is. That's why I mentioned, um, you know, fast food nation. Like it's entirely symptomatic of this kind of capital accumulation that people would buy from each other, right? So, yes. Oh, sorry. You can. Um, I mean, if one doesn't start from the what is clearly of the, the dominant background notion that um, kind of the possibly liberal, new liberal notion of virtual spaces, spaces of possibility, okay. then in some sense it's the transfer of uh, or the replication of rights, race, discourses onto the virtual world doesn't seem surprising. You've done a very good job. So I want to actually ask the question the other way around. What are the differences between the space of rights in the real world versus the space of, uh, of rights in the, in, in, in the digital world? I mean, what, what, does the notion of right change? I mean, how does, I mean, because it seems to me, the, the analogy seems to be a good one, but it's not, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it seems to me that one that I d didn't come to me so surprised, but I, right, I suspect right. there must be differences in the replication. Oh, of course. And then, and, and, and that, um, there are huge what, how differences. does race change? How does rights change? In yeah. The, in that, in that? I, I won't even begin to claim that getting killed in World of Warcraft is anything like getting killed in other places, I mean, that, that's a crazy thought. I mean, that's very 90s thinking about, you know, avatars as, as being you. Like, that's not true at all. Um, the lens I'd like to look at it through is uh, the idea of microaggression, right? Microaggression can occur across a wide variety of planes. Bonilla Silva writes about this. So, you know, and being called a name in the grocery store might be a little more like being killed by another player in World of Warcraft because you're Korean or because you're Chinese. It doesn't mean nothing, you know? It's not nothing. Um, but certainly to say that this is a form of you know, genocide, which is how some people have talked about you know, campaigns against Korean players in game, I, I wouldn't go that far at all. Um, I'm more interested in the kind of selective way that the discourse of rights um, and of the refugee is coming back in virtual world discourse at a time where there are more refugees around than there have been in a long time. Right? I mean, the, the, I don't have the UN numbers before me, but the number of people who are stateless, according to the UN, is very high. So when I, I read our rent now with a kind of new eye, right? Because when I hear the idea of the statelessness or the, the stateless or the refugee appropriated by legal scholars to talk about second life or to talk about any virtual world, I'm just, I need to understand that, right? I need to kind of unpack that a little bit. Because I, I do agree with the rent. Like there is a way that the stateless or the refugee is a figure of modernity. Um, and I also think there's a way that you know, I know that, that slavery is also part of the foundation of modernity. And so we're not in modernity, but something is happening around that discourse and the kind of reintroduction of a certain kind of slavery, right? Um, which I think needs to be looked at closely. I mean, especially because, as I was talking to David, I think that digital games, virtual world games, are the internet of, of the Audis. Right? In the 90s, the internet was going to be the global village and make it all great, and we would all be merit, meritocratists or whatever. And that's not true anymore. I mean, people see the internet as a big, um, vast wasteland, kind of like TV now. You know, my students say it's for time wasting. But virtual worlds somehow have taken up that utopian side and now have a lot of people, you know, these, these uh, Aruvians and so on, 
I'm using the same discourses that people use about their homelands, right? They, they appeal to this idea of sovereignty. So why and how they're doing that, I think, is really interesting. So you talked a little bit about the various kinds of labor that are going on in these spaces, and I'd just really like it if you'd unpack that a little, because I think there's something interesting in um, the gold farmers are might be viewed as an extreme of the sort of spectrum of different types of labor that is being used or exploited or what have you. I mean, when you think about uh, people in EverQuest or in World of Warcraft selling their own characters, despite yeah. the fact they're leisure players, all the way over to what you mentioned, fan labor, etc. And I think there's some, I, I'd just really like you to unpack that a little more, because I'd like to see what what you think, where, where do gold farmers sort of fit in that uh, constellation of sort of weird positions that people have gotten into? Right. I mean, the gold farmer is a really interesting case for that reason because playing is supposed to be something you pay to do, right? Um, Amazon Mechanical Turk work, you know, you, there's, there's some ambiguity about whether it's fun or not. Some people say they do it for fun because they're bored at work and so they could use the extra five bucks, right? Um, but it's not the same kind of supervised labor that gold farming is. I mean, people literally say, that my boss is putting pressure on me. You know, he's standing there watching me play, and I have to do it the whole time. Um, turking is more like casual labor, right, piece work. You do it when you're bored and so on. Um, though uh, there's a survey, I, a study I didn't cite here. Um, about 20% of the people say they really need the money. So, you know, it is something that's fun and, and kind of time-limited, but they also do need the money anyway. Um, I don't know as much about fan labor in this context. I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm writing this kind of as a reaction to a lot of the work on fan labor, which I feel has taken up really the bulk of the conversation and the scholarship lately. I'm not against fans at all, but I think that the kind of work that fans do is underwritten by other kinds of work that other people do that's not as fun. You know, the idea of creationist capitalism really does stress the creationist side. But just like Van Gogh had to have someone clean his brushes, right? I mean, in some way, all creative labor has a capital cost, which is borne by someone else. So when Virginia Woolf writes about, you know, I need someone to cook for me, and it's kind of a really basic way to say that reproductive labor is part of the cost of creativity. And if we forget that, we kind of forget it at our own peril, right? I mean, it's a way to kind of, you know, um, abdicate responsibility or thinking about those questions of, of work. So, so Dana Boyd, um, one of the challenges I have in getting my head around a lot of this is the way in which it is not a clean division between the gold formers slash players and the corporation. So for friends who've been tracking a a lot of this. So following um, EA or Electronic Arts uh, basically lawsuit about the terrible treatment of their own workforce, uh -huh. they actually pushed a lot of their own hiring practices to um, India, to China, to Eastern Europe, as have so many of the other game players, companies. And what you started to see is this interplay between people who are working as, as menial jobs for these companies suddenly hiring gold farmers, uh -huh. being a part of it. Now right. the companies themselves are also hiring people to go after the gold farmers in-game, mm -hmm. also from these countries. Mm -hmm. And so I find that that messiness, the relationship between the corporation and, and any form of play or labor is, is actually much more intertwined. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you sort of tease out some of this. I have one answer to that, empire. <laughs> you know, the idea of the subaltern and the janissary, like somebody who, you know, is delegated from within the group that is being controlled to then control that group, or, um, you know, uh, I guess in Asian American studies we probably call that the, um, 
comprador, right? I mean, that's also totally symptomatic of other forms of social control, right? So I, did, I actually didn't talk about that there, but that's a great idea. I'll totally put it in. I think that's very smart. And, and also, as you kind of suggested, symptomatic of the logic of digital media itself. Like if someone breaks your game, hire that person. You know, that's the person that you want. That's the person who understands your game in some way. So I think a lot of the player communities are kind of ready to valorize that kind of activity too, um, because they see it as, as participating. You know, you're intervening in some way. Um, I think that that's something I should research more. I mean, I wasn't aware that there was a more porous line between gold farmers and people who had slightly better jobs. It didn't seem like there was much upward mobility in this job. Um, what people seem to do based on, you know, what Gaijin has seen is that if they're, if they're an enterprising gold farmer, they're open a gold farm, you know. So they'll supervise similar activity, but they won't migrate into better or more agentive activity. Pardon? It seems to be primarily the other way, where it's right, like people, people will, who are working fall. as, as low-end um, developers or artists for the corporation oh, okay. are then going and controlling gold farm right, right, right. Um, enterprises because they know the game so well. Right, yeah, this needs to be understood. It's, it's such a, you know, becoming a really pervasive form of management of labor and capital. It's something that needs to be looked at more, so, yeah. Uh, Marty Marks in music and CMS, can you help an illiterate. Um, I am an illiterate. This language is flying by and I am lost. I don't, un and I think Shankar was asking something like this in a different way. Maybe I'm speaking out of turn by saying that, but when you use phrases about, um, exp when you use Hannah Arendt and others to talk about this virtual something, which I'm not sure exactly what it is, Aren't you horribly debasing the reality of the truly stateless person, mm -hmm. the truly totalitarian abuse of power? Mm -hmm. That's what she was writing about. And why do we need that kind of language right. to talk about it? I mean, and I hear phrases like creationist capitalism, reproductive labor, and I think how loaded all these terms are with very serious and, and morally complex meanings right. and I want to hear about I mean I don't understand what any of this really means in terms of the human cost that's anything like the true tragedies of 20th century life I mean mm -hmm. I, I'm just I'm feeling a total disconnect here right okay so let's just pretend I'm a student who doesn't get it what do you say to them right if you were a student I would have given you at least three other lectures beforehand <laughs> to explain what this is and what some of these terms are and I, I really apologize I sacrificed describing to get to the kind of theoretical side so I'm not surprised at people who don't play World of Warcraft didn't really know where I was going. Um, I totally agree with you. I think it is entirely disrespectful and, um, and wrong to see this discourse used this way, but I am not the one doing it. Um, it's really legal scholars who are and people using Uru who are saying, we are stateless, we are refugees, we are the ones who are being, um, we are the ones who are victims of our, our, the industry, right? Uru or Blizzard not taking care of us the right way, right? So they're not protecting us from gold farmers who, you know, earn in-game stuff and make our lives harder by asking us to buy it. And they're not protecting us by letting us have our homeland in this one virtual world, right? We have to move. 
So I, I was not trying to say that these things are equivalent in any way. What I was pointing to is the return of this language by people who are basically playing what many would consider a game. Right? They're, they're playing a game, but they certainly don't view the stakes and their investment in it as just a game. Instead, they are trying to grab onto the most intense and most morally loaded language you can possibly find, which is this language. Well, right? Just, just to follow up, I, I can certainly attest from my experience bridge over the years <laughs> that people can get to the most horrendous emotional um, uh, states Absolutely. when playing a game. It can become the most important thing That's in right. their lives. But I've never heard anybody talk about, I mean, and we talk about the metaphor of chess as war. I understand those things. I just, I worry very much that the language of this discourse is totally inappropriate for the material at hand and that one has to fight tooth and nail to get it down to a plainer language where these meanings, um, th where we can get to a deeper understanding instead of feeling like we're wading through a thicket. That's, mm -hmm. it, it's more an attack on the people you're dealing with mm -hmm. than you because you're answering the questions very clearly. I, I, mm -hmm. I want to make that clear myself. Thanks. Right. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I'm always amazed that it's legal scholars from whom this comes, right? Because <coughs> clearly the kind of affective or emotional investment in the game has really dominated any kind of rational, I was, I'll go so far as to say, thinking about what is at stake and who is being harmed. I mean, when, I, when you look at the documentaries of gold farmers, you think, all right, Leisure player is irritated that he can't farm this dragon. Whereas Chinese player is sitting there for 11 and a half hours trying to farm the same dragon, you know, and then going home to you know, sleep under the computer. Like, who is, who is the victim here, right? Um, but the discourse is, is very much, as you say, thicketed no, with these kinds of contradictions and these kinds of tensions. And they're thicketed in such a way that it, it's really become part of the public and legal discourse which you know, I think an intervention needs to be made to kind of unpack it, so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, it's very important. But can I push on that a little yeah. harder because it seems to me the analogy you set up, while it certainly puts the responsibility on those who are, in a sense, exploiting the gold farmer position, it seemed to me the rhetoric of your own talk what is just now putting a parallelism between the 12 hours, the chain to the desk. You were using the same kind of language with Cesar Chavez, to, you were setting up an analogy of liberation from mm -hmm. this false consciousness for the gold farmers. I mean, at least as I was hearing it until now. So now I'm a little confused right, of right. what you think your, in, your intervention right. is. That's important. That's important to clarify. It's true. Um, I'm trying to talk about what gold farmers are doing as part of a labor migration pattern. It's virtual labor migration, but it's still labor migration. People are at their desk, but they're in another space working in that space, right? Um, I wouldn't say they're refugees or they're stateless. I'm not making that claim for them. Um, but this is a new formation of, of virtual labor migration that probably should be viewed alongside other forms of labor migration. So looking at Pakistani migrants in Dubai and their working conditions, that in some ways that makes more sense, or their inability to be recognized as citizens there, and their inability to control their movements there, or their right of return sometimes there. It makes more sense to view this like that, right? Um, I think the idea of, of the stateless is a really um, kind of slippery one, too, because when people are working in world, right, when they're in the game, playing it, 
Um, they are stateless. They're in violation of EULA. But they're sitting in China as citizens of China, right? There's no doubt about that. So that part is clear. Um, I think, you know, looking at virtual worlds is still, it's still complicated. There isn't really good theory to talk about this kind of thing. Um, I'm kind of doing the best I can here, but um, I appreciate that comment. I think that's true. Like, these are not really stateless people. Nobody is in, that I'm talking about, right? There are people who are stateless. I'm not really talking about those people. Um, but the discourse of statelessness gets used a lot and invoked a lot. Um, so, you know, what it is to be in a virtual world, whether you're in a state or not, I mean, that, that's still, I don't, I don't think that makes any sense. But um, affectively, you can't really ignore that people do care a lot about what they're doing there. It does matter to them. Um, people are spending a lot of time, so we can't really blow it off as nothing. But neither is it exactly nationality, right, or sovereignty. It does seem to be conflating the imaginary and the actual labor conditions a bit in places. That's why I'm, mm -hmm. at some points it feels like a, you're emphasizing the gap between mm -hmm. the two worlds, and at other moments it's becoming aligned. So that's interesting. I'd like, I, I wonder if we could. I wonder if we could turn this in a, uh, in a, in a, in an ancillary direction. I think it's. I think the kind of uh, question I want to ask is relevant to the discourse we've just been having, but, but alters it in certain ways. And it's. It seems to me that I, I, I much admire your skepticism about the uh, inflated rhetoric that attaches to. The world of virtual games, and I and I, I, I found some of this in your writing even more powerfully than in your talk, and it's something I think is very important in our present in our present ad, uh, circumstances. Uh, but what I want to ask you about now is, is is a related matter to the stuff we've been discussing. And is it possible? Would you agree that one of the things you're showing, essentially, or calling our attention to? Is, the, is a, something qu quite simple and obvious to people who've ever studied any aspect of the development of capitalism, which is uh, forms of the exploitation of labor. Mm -hmm. Now, so my question is, uh, and, and so this would be a kind of a, a small instance of the way in which the digital universe is replicating the behavior of, of uh, capitalist formations ever since we've had capitalist formation. My question is, isn't that argument much more powerful and much more uh, productive if we acknowledge not only the virtual labor like this, but all of the actual labor that, that contemporary capitalism has, and you've alluded to some of them, to the people who sit in Dubai and, or in India and answer telephones when you call to get information about how to fix your computer, or to the people who do the McDonald's orders for you. In other words, it seems to me that isn't it, uh, uh, do you find a problem in seeing the gold farmers as really in some sense a very small subset of a much larger mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and apparently enlarging population of ill-paid people who, who live in, un, in, in, in uh, developing or underdeveloped uh, areas serving the needs of, 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 mm -hmm. of a much wealthier sector of the, of the world. And if you do agree about that, Lisa, why focus so much on the gold farmers instead of on the, on, on the actual exploited 
who, who in many cases have circumstances that are much more terrible right. than, than uh, you know, 20 and 30 year old. I don't mean to undermine, uh, underestimate how, how, what their, their unhappiness, but the fact is many of them are players. They play after hours. Right. Uh, they are getting paid for something they enjoy and do well. I don't mean to justify their mistreatment, but that, that doesn't seem to me the same as other forms of this kind of exploitation. Right. Well, you caught me between book projects, right? Because <laughs> that would be a different chapter of, of a related thing. Um, I think it's because with this, I'm trying to make an intervention into game studies in particular. I'm critiquing it and its terms and the ways that it envisions itself to itself. I'm using a slightly different set of theoretical tools than they would probably use, right? So that's, that's the specific purpose of this paper. Um, but the book project I'm working on will do that. Um, that's part of what I'm trying to accomplish with it. Um, but it's also not just that. I mean, I'm trying to look at changing ideas of work and, and labor in digital media, right? So everything is fun and nothing is fun. Everything is work and nothing is work, right? That's the kind of familiar discourse around Web 2.0, that Web 2.0 is fun, everything is fun, but it, it is all work in some ways, right? Um, you know, we're constantly being mined and surveilled and the information is sold and bought and, you know, we don't get to keep any of it, right? The profit all goes somewhere else. Um, but also that these are forms of value that really are, are poorly understood. I mean, people often, I think, feel cheated. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not really clear how and why, but there's a sense of dis-ease with this arrangement. And so I wanted to look at that in a more kind of differential and nuanced way than usually is, because I, I will say, I think most of this really is from the consumer perspective, right? It's viewed as a flaw with the product, right? The audience is not happy, it's a flaw with the product. But not everybody is a consumer in some way. Just like the line between play and work is really porous, the line between consumer and producer is really porous as well. And so, you know, as I've mentioned to other people, in some ways this is a reaction against convergence, um, uh, convergence culture, right? That it's all fun and it's all good. Well, it's not all fun and it's not all good. I'm not trying to kill the buzz too bad. But I feel like that you know, this needs to be articulated a little more. So certainly this, is, this argument is not at all perfect. I'm really happy to get these comments. I mean, it was kind of risky to give this because it's not done. Um, but that's partly why it's written this way, is that all the gaming stuff is written from the perspective of the gamer. Or maybe the developer. But there are people who are neither gamers nor developers who are really implicated in games as an industry and as a culture. And those people never get talked about, right? There's this real problem with alterity with game studies, I think, in digital media generally, but really with game studies right now. Um, fan culture is about anti-alterity. <laughs> it's, it's about me, you know, in some way, me and my desires and my affect. Other people's affect doesn't have much of a way to find it, to, to get in. So I'm not, this is certainly not a perfect job of doing that, but I'm trying to, to kind of reshape it so that that could be seen or that could be taken account of. Um, Alex Lovett, Convergence Culture Consortium. I'm really interested. I'm not dissing you. I'm <laughs> <saying>. <laughs> I think you're great. <laughs> I'm really interested in uh, the physical geography and real life communities and how the digital affects that instead of the reverse. Oh. Um, so, a lot of the work that you presented is specifically China, but how much are we seeing, especially in what you mentioned, the global south in South America or Africa? Or um, why are we looking just at a specific? Um, demographic of workers when we could potentially see like American high schoolers using this as a part-time job? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I know American high schools do use this as a part-time job. Occasionally I, I scan Craigslist and there's an undergrad selling his avatar and sometimes I email them and I say, why does it cost so much? Why are you selling it? And they always say the same thing, girlfriend or finals. <laughs> Those are the two answers. Or boyfriend sometimes. Um, the average cost is around $300. So yeah, that's another form of labor and activity that I'm not talking about specifically. And the only reason I'm not is that that's not really demonized activity. You know, that's viewed as part of the culture and it's cool and it's fine. So if your girlfriend gives you their avatar, that's cool and fine, even though technically, I guess, it's against the user and user license agreement as well. That's viewed as part of the kind of folk or community or, you know, commons aspect that's okay because we're all leisure players. It's when someone thinks that there's some kind of livelihood at stake, ironically, <laughs> that it becomes totally wrong or, or very, very, you know, out of bounds because then you're not part of the player community anymore then you become something else. So this something else is what I'm interested in, right? And there's, there's pretty good documentation of player communities, maybe too much documentation of player communities sometimes, <laughs> but really not of other things. Um, and so I was trying to fill that gap a little bit. Um, <coughs> but yeah, China, why? Um, there is a really huge archive of player-produced content around Chinese gold farmers, too. My first article I didn't talk about today was about machinima, user-produced machinima about gold farmers, hundreds of them, all anti-gold farmer, right? Um, there's just a lot of other texts to look at around that question. And a lot of them invoke Chinese flags and eating dogs and cats and the whole kind of gamut of racist imagery from the 19th century, which I think is interesting, right? Um, that's why it's kind of a convenient cross-media comparative moment for that. Um, but certainly someone should look at that other stuff as well. I agree. I mean, um, Julian DeBell's research found that the first gold farm was in Mexico. I would love to know more about that. Like, why in Mexico? Why didn't that succeed? You know, who thought to do it there? Like, that's an interesting question. But yeah, the global south, like you say, it's big. It's certainly not just China. So this actually brings yes. me close to my own question, Wayne Marshall, FLNL Music, and some other affiliations. Um, uh, which has to do with, with racialization. And it, it seemed clear to me that the discourse about rights and, and indigeneity and so forth was your was not, not your own terms, but terms you were seeing people use, right, especially right. In, in, in the academic discourse, but also you know, the, the users themselves. In terms of race, and you've just alluded to some of it, I, I, I want to know more about the process of racialization and, and how that's emerging here. Mm -hmm. And I can definitely see it from sort of coming from the, the anti-gold farm side of things or the Korean player killer sort of thing. Um, but even then, we see it figured as often in terms of national or linguistic terms. Mm -hmm. When we saw the one uh, gold farmer talk about how, how he yearned to play with foreign right, players, right. it was actually a language issue for him as yeah. opposed to feeling, you know, uh, marginalized because of, of race or, or other sorts of issues. So I was, I, I guess I'm curious to know so when you're thinking about race, and this is a much long, much more long-standing issue in your own research, mm -hmm. how that's emerging in these, in these spaces or in these encounters. Right. That's, that's a great question. I mean, somebody, when I was working on this earlier, said, you know, but it's Chinese who are buying from other Chinese here. So how can Chinese be racialized as being these immiserated marginal workers necessarily, right? Um, uh, one way to see how racialization occurs in this example would be um, work that I didn't do, but Constance Steinkuhler. She looked at Lineage 2 and how gold farmers were choosing the same kinds of avatars to play because they could level quickly and play by themselves. So female dwarves were the characters that Chinese would pick to use as gold farming avatars, right? 
And those characters became unplayable. No one would talk to them, no one would group with them, no one would dare to play one because you were hated I mean, and despised and treated badly. And because it was a PvP, PvP game, you could not do anything as that class or race. It became an unplayable or untouchable class or race because of its association with a certain form of labor. So that's a kind of interesting racialization, right? I mean, dwarves and females, like, there just was no particular reason why those should become unplayable or untouchable, but that's how race works anyway, right? Like, there's no particular reason why people of darker skin should have these problems, but, you know, that's how it is. So um, she did not really make of it what I do, but um, she kind of did that work and just said, okay, here it is. You know, certain types of players can pollute certain types of play or certain types of avatars. So, yeah. Uh, uh, Jing Wang, FLO. Um, I, I would like to like, link up to what Marty and Diane and David and Shankar said about or their, their questions. Um, well, to summarize what, what I think, where they came from, I would ask a, a very general question and then followed by a specific question about the gender distribution. Mm -hmm. um, the general question is, uh, why do those social issues happening in the 3D world? And actually, I'm a player in Second Life. Oh, okay. So, but this is a question sort of, um, well, it is a critical question that I constantly think about. Why do the digital illiterates who make up the majority of, of the population or of academic critics, why would they or we care about the debate about those social issues happening in the 3D virtual worlds? Mm -hmm. So that's sort of summarizing what they, what mm -hmm. they were talking about. Mm -hmm. And then the more specific question is the gender distribution of goat farmers. Mm -hmm. Gender is, I think, embedded in your subtitle, but you didn't say a lot about it. Right, I had to cut some. this pretty radically to fit it into half an hour. It would have been a lot longer if I put that in. Yeah, I'm just um, right. Yeah, um, gold farming is a male occupation, partly because people live in dorm like conditions. So I know there are some gold farms where women take the day shift and men take the night shift, but they're always separate from each other because people are living so close together. Um, so gold farming is kind of by default a male activity and whether that has to do with the forms of kind of harassment that gold farmers get I'm sure there's some connection to that right um, the majority the minority of players in World of Warcraft are female they're almost not mostly but they're definitely mostly down from 85 percent men to 70 something percent men um, so it's definitely a gendered form of work right and it deserves attention as that it's kind of interesting that that's the case um, so why should people who don't play World of Warcraft care about this, is the question, right? Not the first part? people who are players of uh, World, but digital illiterates, you know, a bracket is what the word illiterates. Why, why, do, why, do, why do those people care about virtual labor migration mm -hmm. and those social issues? Now, as uh, people living in the first world, it would be hard not to care. Right? Uh -huh. Yeah. However, it is possible for some of us to say this doesn't uh, is not relevant to to us. So, I, I guess the question is, why do they care? 
about the seven issues that they would care in real life, but not in virtual, not in the virtual world. Okay. Well, it's a question you don't have to answer. No, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer it. Let me think about it. Um, Why I do they care about those debates? How right. Right. I think I would link it to the clip I showed at the beginning. Like there's still a pervasive sense, maybe more so among people who don't use virtual worlds, that these are spaces of possibility. Right? They haven't been critiqued so much on this basis. They've been critiqued on the basis of time wasting, addicting, and violent. Right? Those are the three ways people talk about digital games. Um, but there is no or little critique of this, per se. So um, one reason I think people should care whether or not they use them is that this is a model for development, right? That even if you don't use a virtual world, somebody is making a living doing so. And doing it under these types of conditions, that's kind of an issue everybody should care about. Um, but as someone else was saying, it's also a possible area of economic development for people here. You know, we just don't have it in this form, um, but it's something to consider when thinking about what is the form of work going to be in general for us or anyone. So again, I'm not saying this is predictive of what will happen, um, but I think it's, it's important to know that these are new forms of labor that people are doing and that when we do our forms of labor that we like, I mean, in some ways there, there are connections between these forms of labor that we wouldn't like. So. Just to clarify, yeah. since I've been put in that category. I, I was actually thinking, I'm more interested in the aesthetic argument. That is right. the difference between virtuality and the sense of being an aesthetic right. different area, not in terms of whether I play it or not. Right. I suppose, I mean, I need to dissociate myself a little bit from Mojing's as well as <laughs> Martin, um, Marty's reconstruction of my position because it's, is that the, the, it doesn't actually bother me I mean, in the same way it doesn't bother Marty that there's some kind of debasement of the terminology that's happened. Um, I'm not actually, but what, what became clear to listening to the question that came out of it was, I suppose my, uh, and it's more like of a comment, that my, I was able to pinpoint my own kind of discomfort of the talk in some sense more clearly. And it has to do with what I take to be a too sharp a binary division between the real and the virtual. Because mm. um, it seems to me that's where David's question also points to. Because once you've got that, then you've got all these, it's a bit of a false debate because you've got all this question of transfers and so on. But if you start thinking more broadly, simply in terms of differentials, wage capital, wage labor, etc., then the digital and real all become part of the same thing and you have differential formations within it, right? And at that point, the question, to, well, how I would answer the Jing's question, why would one care? is precisely through the notion of the affect that you have for an avatar. It's not because, in other words, I mean, I was reading some stuff the other day about branding, and one of the arguments Jeff was making was um, buying fair trade and stuff like that. I mean, the reason it doesn't quite work is it already assumes an ethical position that you already buy, in, buy into. Um, but what it also doesn't take into account is actually the real affect that people have towards brands. So the way to disturb that affect, but in a way that leaves its results unpredictable, is in fact to destroy, to show that that affect in fact is tied up with, so you like Nike, Nike is a great thing, but it also does sweat labels. That changes your own affective response to the brand rather than working the other way around by trying to raise your moral outrage about 
people you've never seen across the world, etc. So it's, uh, that would be my answer. That I mean, the, the way one to your work, what your work is the possibility of doing is in fact changing the affective relationship one has to the very avatars with one is connected. Oh, 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 very good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm curious t as to what the other forces other than labor are to um, these patterns of migration. Like, I remember when I was playing Diablo 2 back in the day, um, there was this big problem of there were servers for specific continents, yeah, yeah, and yeah. the hatred for Korean players that developed on US East was because they were invading because their server was overpopulated. Uh -huh. So what other... I'm, I'm curious as to what other sort of motivations, I guess, for migration and displacement are um, that you've seen? Right, yeah, you're right. Some of it is is not about labor per se, right? I mean, the reason Chinese players play on American servers when they're trying to farm gold is that you, you can't transfer gold between servers. So you have to migrate to earn gold. It's very, it is very kind of state-like in that way. But sometimes people do it just for convenience, right? And then you do have these struggles, sometimes over language, um, as Doug Thomas has found, it's often over player style. Um, this is a totally other area that I don't really work on especially, but I know in Asia, PvP is much more common. And so people tend to be slightly more aggressive players to other players in that context because that is the norm. And so American players see this as totally psychopathic. Right? <laughs> they interpret it as an ab absolutely outside acceptable play, and so they'll react accordingly. Um, I have not you know, research as much, but I know that's, that's the case. And so it, it is kind of this misunderstanding um, around how to play the game. You know, what's the, what are the norms of how to play it? Um, it could get worked out theoretically, right? But I mean, the gold farmer says we can't communicate. You know, I wish we could play together, but there are so many things in the way. So some of them are infrastructural, some of them are linguistic, some of them are cultural, some of them are economic, right? So there's a huge kind of array of things that, that need to be negotiated before you can have this cross-cultural play. So I think this, you know, global village idea is, is in fact really shot through with a lot of tensions, you know. Um, and developers would like us to think that we're diversifying our experiences by being online in virtual worlds with other people, that we're learning foreign languages. I don't know what they think we're learning, right? We're learning tolerance or, or learning how to appreciate cultures, right? That would be the line. Um, but Absolutely, that's not the case, right? I mean, migration is sometimes forced migration. Um, and even when it's not, I mean, there's so many other um, kind of factors that need to be accounted for. So, yeah, I just looked at one, but yeah, there's a whole lot of others, that's for sure. Oh, thank you. Uh, Philip Tan, Singapore Magic Game Game Lab. Um, when you were describing the conditions that the folks were working in, um, one thing that occurred to me is that sounds a lot like game development, actually. <laughs> That's totally Twelve true. Twelve hours on your desk, sleeping on your desk. That's creationist well, capitalism, though, right? Uh, it's yeah. what's called program versus unprogrammed labor, Manuel Castells would say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 it's at least, at least some of the horror stories and some of the things that we're talking about EA as, as, as well. And, I'm, and, and, and it strikes me that a lot of the practices... I mean, um, having gone to game development con con conferences and meeting some of the Chinese businessmen uh, selling outsourcing services, I'm wondering whether to some extent um, the mobility of the people who are working in Askel Farmers may, may not be great, but, as, but their managers are some of the most aggressive entrepreneurial people I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it, 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 going from selling 
gold to selling art assets to selling complete games is something that the managers seem to be successfully doing actually um and changing the way how games are even made, you know, Western games are even made, because I, I, I'll read an article about um, lauding a company by successfully being able to use outsourcing, mm-hmm. um, a, a U.S. company to, mm-hmm. to outsource their work in India or China. So, so I'd like to get your thoughts on how this could actually change the way how these games are made um, and, and whether that might, that might make spaces that are possibly... You know, better environments for gold farmers. Uh, you know, or maybe you 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 see some discussion happening about how how the way how the games are being made might actually affect the uh, the the way how these practices occur. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, when you mentioned the similarity between game making and game playing or game playing for money. It made me also think about the question about gender that you mentioned, that these really, you know, game developing is a very male thing, partly because the possibility of family is just remote if you're working that much. I mean, Mark Dews did an interesting ethnography of game developers and found that women just left. Like, it wasn't that they didn't want to do it, but they just could not handle, like, the insane amount of hours and isolation that came along with it. And it was very unfriendly to women. So women were not actively kind of avoided sometimes as workers for that reason. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I would like to think in some ways that you know, this form of labor, which is immiserated on both sides, I would say I wouldn't want to do either of those things. Um, there is some possibility for resistance, right? There is some possibility for claiming creative space. Um, gold farmers don't make machinima that I know. But I don't, again, I don't speak Chinese. I need to get an assistant to help me with that. I mean, maybe they do. Um, some of these people do talk in a kind of conscious way about knowing that they are a part of a class, right? They say, I know, I have a sense of inferiority. I know that I am this. And there's possibility in that, right? There always is. That's what's great about you know, new media is that there's possibility when there's a sense of shared identity, people could do something. I don't know what it is. Um, but I think that's part of the coming to consciousness of a group is when they identify themselves as sharing a struggle, then maybe something can happen. So whether it's in the realm of business, right, transforming the game or making a different game or in some other way, um, I, I like to think that could happen, yeah. Okay, well, I'm afraid we have to wind down now. Lisa Nakamura, thanks very much for your paper and your questions. <laughs>